0: It, it just doesn't seem to, to fit.
1: Wait, did you hear that? Wow. I think there's... I'm on a, I live on a street. I'm sorry. It's, it's New York City. It's not like the, the crazy part of New York <laughs> City, but it is New York City. It's, it appears to be a fight.
2: Welcome to Thinking Deeply About Primary Education, the podcast that makes time and space to really think about pedagogy, teaching and learning, professional development, anything of interest to time poor but enthusiasm-rich primary teachers. This week, I'm joined by Christopher Such. Hello again. And Michael Pershing. Hi. And I had to say, it's an absolute honour to have you here with us, Mike. We really appreciate it. Big fans of your uh, of your work. And I'm uh, really looking forward to this conversation. But first, Chris, what are you reading for? Hey, what are you reading for?
0: Uh, This past week, it will come as no surprise to people that I've been reading about reading development. Um, I continue to read the brilliant book, The Science of Reading Handbook, which came out a month or two ago. In particular, this week I've been reading a chapter called Learning to Read Words by uh, Anne Castles and Kate Nation. It covers some ground that is in the paper that the two of them, um, along with Kathleen Russell, contributed to um, ending the reading wars. But it goes into a little bit more detail, in particular, on word recognition. The thing I love about it in particular is that it elegantly explores different aspects of word recognition using a framework of sublexical level learning and lexical level learning a fancy way of saying well let's look at the bits of decoding that involve us breaking down and analyzing words and let's look at the parts of word recognition that maybe involve the development of things like a sight word lexicon and uh, mispronunciation correction which we discussed last week or a couple of weeks ago I should say with the brilliant Danielle Kolombrander. I know it's an expensive book So it's really one for the research um, geeks amongst us when it comes to reading. But if you do take the plunge, you won't regret it. Um, Michael, what are you reading for?
1: I've been reading a lot about homework research lately. I've been trying to make sense of it. I think it's, uh, I don't know, it's a fascinating area of research because it seems so straightforward that... You know, you expect that students who are assigned practice learn something from it, but it's incredibly difficult to to measure this thing. And um, as late as two thousand three, my favorite paper that I've read uh, as part of this thing, as part of this kind of little dive into homework research, is by I'm trying to get, get it. They're they're German, and which means that I'm about to mispronounce their names, but Trout. Okay, trout, wine, and collar, trout, vine, and I don't know, but it's called the relationship between homework and achievement, still much of a mystery. Now, to be fair, that's from 2003. So I don't know, it's not as much of a mystery as it was in 2003, but at that point, homework had been studied and researched for about a century, and uh, 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 people have been talking about does homework impact achievement and help kids learn for about 100 years, and to say in 2003 that it's still a mystery, I think uh it's a wonderful read, and it's surprising and to, it was eye-opening to me to realize that something that seems so straightforward could really be so subtle, and uh, it's challenged how I think about homework it's It's made me think that 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 the relationship between if you, if you're doing homework because you think it'll help kids learn a lot, you might want to take a a deep breath <laughs> and and and, uh, and think about whether that's sufficient because it's not as straightforward as you might think. What, what are you reading?
2: <laughs> so I think part of what I'm reading links a little bit to that, because then it's, it's by David Geary. I'm going to give anyone who's in the car with their kids the chance to turn the volume down for about maybe five seconds. But the paper is called Sex, Mathematics, and the Brain, an Evolutionary Perspective. And I know, obviously, in this case, they're talking about gender. But um, you know I want to keep that uh, non-explicit written on the, on the podcast. But essentially, it's a collection of works looking at how we've evolved and the impact that might have on um, gender differences. I think that, that's sort of a general way of looking at it. And so for me, big fan of David Geary's work, but I've always thought of gender differences as something of a self fulfilling prophecy. So I'm very keen to go further into it. You know, I've I read David's introduction and next I'm gonna see what the other authors have to have to say. And um, at the start, he talks about them. Um, differences in culture and attitude and he, he cites some homework papers as the difference sometimes between um between high-performing jurisdictions and non-high-performing jurisdictions so maybe I'll send the, those your way and um, you know because the, the you know the, the jury is out in terms of homework but uh, I think uh, yeah when David Geary writes something I'm going to read as much of it as I possibly can So this week, we're going to focus on self-explanation. And my first question is when we say self-explanation, what are we referring to?
1: It's an excellent question because um, I think a belated, something that that researchers have only started becoming more sensitive to is that there might be several different things that are called self-explanation. So maybe we should start with um, the beginning of worked example research. And uh, which, by the way, part of being a parent of young children and also a teacher in the beginning of the summer is that my brain is addled. I don't remember things anymore. I don't have uh, citations in front of me. I'm not a researcher. So uh, as much as I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna make mistakes here. So I'm just giving myself permission for that. But in the, my understanding is, you know, in the, uh, I love the story of cognitive science. I love, um, I love the whole sweep of it. By the '80s, cognitive scientists were studying problem solving. Sometimes people in math education call '80s the problem solving decade, in kind of like a self-important way. Uh, but that's where worked example research, my understanding, is where it comes out of: is the realization that if you could learn from problem solving, uh, you could also learn from studying solutions, and that might be more efficient in a lot of cases. So, so that's happening. People are studying worked examples and learning from worked examples, and there's. Uh, uh, I think it's Chi, right? Um, Who says for the first time, wait a second, there's actually differences in how people study work examples. As a matter of fact, stronger students study work examples differently from students who uh, go on not to to, to reveal that they haven't learned very much from it. Students who are later successful uh, study examples in a more careful way. And she asked people to say out loud what they were thinking as they were studying the work example. And as people did that, she heard as they were talking out loud, like, okay, so there's this over here. What's that? Oh, oh, I see. That's this, that, that. She called that self explanation. And she noticed that some students do this and some didn't. And she said, well, the students who do this are more likely to be successful in their later problem solving than the ones who don't. That's the beginning of it. Cut to, you know, 20, 30 years later, there's a lot of research that claims to study self explanation. Um, by the way, she's reaction to this realization was to prompt students to self explain. Uh, but she herself, I think, uh, didn't see self explanation as necessarily a verbal thing. Um, it wasn't necessarily a verbal, clear, explicit articulation. It was some other thing. What, what's that other thing? It's not entirely clear. And so as people are studying self explanation, there's this kind of cloud of a lot of different things people are saying, you know, it's about attention. People who are self-explaining are paying more attention, or maybe it's that they're um, actually offering explanations, or maybe it's that they are uh, realizing a self-assessment and self-regulation. They're realizing things that they don't understand. So those are really different effects, like cognitively, right? There's a difference between greater attention, self-regulation, and realization, awareness of basically on- online awareness of of, of of gaps in your understanding that you're then motivated to to try to correct, and um, and some effect of actually articulating an explanation. So what is this? I'm really fond of this uh, uh, this attempt by Rankle and Itel to, uh, in this chapter about self-explanation, to try to c- clarify this a little bit. So what I, what I think that they do, which is super smart, is they start by saying there's a lot of things that self-explanation might be. So they narrow in on one of them, one specific self-explanation effect that they think is real, and they think it's about generalization. It's about, you have a specific work example or a specific solution or a specific whatever that you are studying. And um, how do you, you know, you wanna apply that to some other thing, that's the whole point. Abstraction or generalization is how you do that. You have this very dot, you've got a specific thing and you need to kind of make that apply to more things. You have to take something out of that that you can then apply to something else so that this problem and this problem, which are different problems, are connected. So um, he says he's interested in a kind of self-explanation that does that that, 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 that supports generalizations. And I think that's smart. I think that clarifies what we're doing. And I think that that's, uh, that's where self-explanation can help. It can help make generalizations. You can then apply to more problems.
2: I mean, it's really, really interesting that you mentioned attention. Because, and one of our sort of early career teachers i'm exploring your sort of model for example worked examples and we're looking at well, what's the distinction between say the silent teacher which we've been using the school for a while and um you know breaking things into sort of more component parts and we noticed that the pupils would pay attention to us more than they would pay attention to the worked example in those initial stages, and we thought very carefully well how are we going to get?" because you obviously talk about how important it is that you know pupils who spend more time quietly analyzing tend to uh, sort of understand later on. I think yeah, so really interesting, that, you know, I can see the almost the opposite pupils struggling to sort of spend their attention in, in the right
1: direction. First of all, I mean something like like that kind of pattern of behavior. Is going to be really, I think, sensitive to a lot of things that don't have to do just with self-explanation, right? I, I've been teaching my students for months and months and months, so they know what to expect when I do a thing, and maybe that impacts how they direct their attention, um, or their older students or their younger students. And younger students approach school differently. Uh, they, you know, interact with teachers. They think of their teachers differently. They might be more troubled by their teacher doing something funny, you know. So attention's a, a you know a, a, a kind of fickle thing. You know, that, but that's an observation you're making about, you know, I feel like the sensitivity of, of routines to context and the difficulty of saying, hey, here's the set of actions you can do that'll work in any situation. It needs to be bigger than flexible or more flexible and more principle-based, really, so that you can say, wait, I'm having this problem, I need to adapt it this way. Right. So I I feel like the outcome of any kind of pedagogical discussion needs to be a little bit more abstract than just a bunch of behaviours if we're going to apply it widely.
0: Can I ask a very basic like, follow up question along these lines? I mean, you've obviously looked at the research into self-explanation a great deal more than I have. The bits that I looked at re- talked about things relating to uh, it was quite broad, but they also mentioned like inference in reading. So they're saying like here is in short self explanation is useful when there's a gap between two things, as you say, a generalization or some kind of leap where um, knowledge that pupils already have has to be brought to bear in a new context through which they may, you know, learn to generalize in some way. and. The thing about, say, comprehension strategies that relate to this is that the idea is that you can teach them, use them. So like a kind of form of self-explanation that has effects that go beyond the immediate learning context. So it isn't just this is a useful way to teach this bit of content, but it's also something that has kind of wider effects, perhaps because of the way it changes pupils' attention. Is there any... Any element of that in the research? In other words, is there an extent to which they're saying getting children into the habit of self-explanation has a wider impact upon learning, or is the research particularly saying no? When you teach this thing, it's better for learning this thing if you use self-explanation.
1: What you're saying like, is it almost like a metacognitive thing that you can then say like, oh, when I'm reading something, I should prompt myself for self-explanation? Is, is that is that the idea? yeah so
0: is there any does the research make that kind of suggestion or is it specifically saying no it's a useful way to learn about x y or z well
1: you know i i there's i i I feel like now we're getting we're moving away with that question away from self-explanation research itself and closer to self-regulation uh learning And, and and that uh because I think I think from the perspective of researchers doing, who I've read who who are looking at self-explanation, they're looking to prompt students. The big idea is let's let's prompt students and improve their learning from an example or from uh, a pair of examples or some other learning activity. But let's let's prompt them to self-explain. Um, now. Yeah. So the first thing I'll say is just like, I don't know, I haven't seen a lot of that in in the things that I've been reading. And but, you know, but but I think the suggestion is that probably going to find like a more of a home in other areas of research than 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 in self-explanation research. And I don't, I don't really know that stuff so well. But the other thing I wanted to say is there there is a kind of. Here, I want to say one thing about research and then just one thing about my opinions. The thing about research I want to say is that I'm really fond of um, another article by Bethany Riddle Johnson and, and some colleagues about um, that I, I think is a, a review of research on self-explanation. And and I think it condenses it into, a, I think, four principles uh, that are relevant for teachers and, and uh, anybody working with kids. And uh, in one of them, she points out and this has been, this is just summarizing a point that others have made, uh, but she's putting it in a nice way. She points out that uh, if you tell students, go ahead and explain this to yourself as a self-explanation prompt and students don't know what an explanation is that's massively unhelpful, right? <laughs> right, right? Students don't always know how to explain things. So if you prompt them to explain them uh, to themselves that's not necessarily gonna help at all. Or if you ask why, why is, Seven plus eight greater than you know two plus nine. I work with third uh, with seven eight year old uh, no I guess nine. I always forget how old my students are. Isn't that weird? Okay, but uh, nine year nine year olds or such that uh, that would just be like well because I did it you know and that's not going to generate good generalizations. That's not going to really do much except draw attention to the fact, uh, which is something you know. But it's not that's not deep thinking. Um, So, so what do you do? So, so there is a kind of hope that that maybe, by teaching self explanation, that is a kind of reciprocal relationship with explanations. I I don't remember releasing any evidence for this, I I think it'd be cool. Um, But there's a kind of understanding that that you might need to, and there are attempts to instruct students in how to give good self explanations. Uh, And I believe that there are, don't quote, I mean, whatever. We can look this up. I think I saw in that in that article, if I'm remembering correctly, I think she says but I didn't look carefully into, but I but I think she says that there were attempts that uh, to train students in, in in giving good self-explanations, and that these had some measured impact on their ability to self-explain and, and learn from it. So so maybe that's that, right? Maybe there's a little bit of that, which is what I think you're suggesting, right? That there there's some persistent. Um, that's not saying that. Right, and that's saying like if you train students, maybe they'll take something away from it. If you train students how to give a good self-explanation, maybe that'll carry on. I mean, the other thing I wanted to say is I think in terms of just myself, my life as a teacher. This is not a research-based opinion, really. It's just there's a lot of things in education, in my in my teaching life, not education, in my in my life with students, where I have hopes, but I'm not betting on them. You know what I mean? I I I I I love that you know the the that that lesson that I did, where I kind of encouraged students to be creative and uh, uh solve a challenging problem uh, that they, that I thought they were ready for. You know, I'd love for that to kind of inspire uh, them to approach more challenges in their own lives, you know, to approach similar problems in their own lives. Or sometimes I in my in my with my younger students, especially, I share logical puzzles. I hope that'll spark. Uh, a love for logical reasoning, and to realize that that's part of math, and that years from now, they'll realize, you know what, I, I love Sudoku, I love using my brain, I love I love thinking carefully about things. So I hope, I have those hopes. At the same time, life is very short-term, right? And I know that that's kind of a long shot, and I know that that's not measurable. So as a teacher, I have all these things that I'm just kind of doing, because I think they're good ideas right now, but I also kind of hope that that, that they might last that they might have some kind of longer impact and what's the worst that could happen. As long as, as long as it makes sense, you know, as, as long as there are things that also make sense to do now, as long as I'm not making massive trade-offs uh, I'm okay with saying, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if this is going to help. I hope it does. That'd be nice. Wouldn't it?
2: Yeah, no, I, I love it because what your, what your ambition does is it ties up, you know, worked examples, more a more traditional style of teaching with the aspirations of all teachers of mathematics. You know, sometimes one of the criticisms leveled at that particular style of teaching is that it it doesn't ask pupils to go deeper and it doesn't ask them to make, you know, generalizations with regards to the beauty, but actually what you've just described there, you know, you couldn't have higher ambitions for your pupils. And I think, you know, it, it definitely makes sense to me that you could realize those ambitions through the sort of approach that you you're you're talking about and promoting.
1: Right, and if it doesn't work out, then I've just done a research-based thing to try to help them learn from this specific example, right? Like the cost. I, I, I kind of like things in, a, in teaching and education more broadly that you know, the worst that could happen is that it's good now. And the best that could happen is it's good in a bigger sense, you know? Uh, I, think, I think the controversies that show up sometimes are when teachers or whatever other people in education say that you should trade off. You know, don't do what's good, what seems good now for the test. Instead, focus on things that'll be good for, for some other reason. I, I think of like projects, you know, inspire a love of mathematics uh, in your students. Isn't that much more important than, you know, passing this test or or a you know, love of reading? Isn't that more important than, than, you know, their ability to succeed on whatever examination or what other you know, to, 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 to know proper grammar or something like that. I don't know, but I like things that are both. I like trying to find that narrow path that kind of, I, I, yeah, I'm, I'm trying not to make too many big trade-offs in either direction, because that way I can try to stay sane. So you've um, given us a kind
0: of explanation of self-explanation, in particular relating to this idea of generalizing. That being the case, would you say that there are aspects of mathematics that um, self-explanation particularly lends itself towards? And obviously with that, are there areas of mathematics where you've used self-explanation as part of your way of using worked examples and then gone, no, actually?
1: Um, Okay, but but you're asking about whether self-explanation is more useful in some areas. Well, let me talk a little bit about, about geometry and shapes which I think, um, you know, I always, sometimes, by the way, we do it in in secondary school in in the U.S., we do it in a kind of silly way, I think, uh, compared to the rest of the world. I think the rest of the world's got it right, which is that you teach a little bit of geometry mixed up with everything else, and then, but the way, in our wisdom, we've been doing it, and we'll, because it's the United States, we'll probably do it forever, is uh, it's a separate course. You take an algebra course in secondary school, you take a geometry course, you take another algebra course, and then you take a pre-calculus or whatever scores. But, um, so there's a year. And sometimes I teach that. I've, I've taught that a lot in geometry class. And I tell students, you know, geometry is often really different uh, from algebra. It feels really different for a lot of people. Well, part of that is because algebra and geometry are, you know, uh, algebra is more connected to the arithmetic that students have been doing for a long time. Part of it is just that they're dis- different disciplines and problem solving as we experience it in school is, uh, it just looks different, right? It, it looks different. Culturally, we've decided that geometry should, when students solve geometry problems, it sometimes is not a numerical computation, but sometimes it's a, a proof, which is, you know, mathematicians. a lot of mathematicians would say that that is uh, more important than people realize from their school lives, the proof and explanation itself. The point I'm trying to make is that geometry is, I think, sometimes a little bit trickier. Uh, for all the worked example and all the self-explanation stuff than then, then algebra and, and arithmetic problem solving. Or when I find myself in other areas of math that are less algebraic, I need to sometimes say, wait a second, how does, how does this apply here? Um, the problem with geometry proof, um, geometry proof, I don't know if this is part of your lives. <laughs> um, is yes, no, familiar at all? Whatever, geometry proof, I sometimes have to teach students to prove things. I have to say, okay, um, here's a parallelogram. It has these things. Prove that it's definitely a rectangle. Prove that all its angles are 90 degrees actually. And they're supposed to infer from the sides or from the given information about the angles or whatever. That, that's a little bit harder because it's a little bit harder to, to define, for me at least, the area that, that, that we're trying to teach. A lot of these things, you know, I have to say, wait a second, this is a parallelogram problem. So, so when I ask students to self-explain uh, in that context, I'm often having a hard time thinking, wait, what is the generalization that I'm going for here? Like what is, I have to think very hard. Uh, whereas with algebra problems, it's often really easy for me to think about. I say, wait, what if the numbers change? What if what if this equation looked a little bit different? I'm trying to teach them to solve a quadratic equation, that is clearly defined. With geometry and proof, especially, sometimes I find myself saying, "Wait, am I just what am I doing? Am I trying to teach kids just to prove anything? That doesn't make any sense." It's often does this make any sense what I'm saying at all? How about, yeah, would 100%. that be a- yeah,
0: 100. Like oh, okay. I, I could imagine
1: trying, like if you
0: are trying to get someone to. Co- deduce a proof for um something um geometric once you've done it then you're going okay so how does this apply to other proofs well it doesn't necessarily the proof itself is almost itself a generalization rather than something that applies elsewhere does that have i conned on
1: exactly i think that it's part of why it's sometimes hard to port the self-explanation work example stuff into something like i don't know secondary english where, where you know you want to uh, say, okay, um, should should we use self explanation to teach students how to craft a compelling story in a creative writing context? Well, I, I don't know The the product is on the one hand so specific, and the context is so, in a way, idiosyncratic, and the domain beyond that is just everything like writing fiction. Uh, so, so if we say like, you know, okay, uh, here's a model of a great story or a passage from a great story or a paragraph, and, uh, now you're going to write a paragraph in, you know, whatever Faulkner's style, and now give a self-explanation, uh, about, you know, what you did, uh, what are we trying to teach? We're trying to describe Faulkner's style, or are we trying to make a greater point about how a paragraph should be constructed? It would require a lot of creative thought, and it might not even be true to how we want to teach these things it might be kind of awkward. And that said, in the mathematical case, which, which you know, even with geometry, I've always been, um, I find it really productive to think in that way. I really found it productive. It's not as natural, um, but I, I find it really productive to say, wait a second, I am trying to prove, I'm trying to teach students how to pr- prove that uh, the f- uh, you know, something along the lines of the uh, the generalization I'm aiming for is if you find yourself in a similar triangles problem, first find all the angles. That's what I'm that's what I'm trying to prove. That's what I'm trying to teach rather. I'm trying to teach that, you know. Um, so those articulations, I think, are just harder to come by, but I think they're true. And I think that 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 I've always found it. So I wouldn't say that self explanation doesn't work as well there as much as I, I think a lot of the pedagogical structure, of 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 some areas of math is just less well understood and less transparent, um, which I think actually actually points to part of I mean part of it is that we've been teaching algebra for a bunch of years, part of it is I think that that's what's special about algebraic problem solving. Its 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 structure is so visible and clear. Also number arithmetic it's so it's so clearly sometimes with 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 arithmetic the problem is that it's so clear that students aren't sure what to say. Like what they've done is so transparent. Uh, and the, so I, I part of that is I think that the technology of numbers and algebra is, is itself really clear. <laughs> That's the problem.
2: Yeah, I, I think you know, listeners around the world will will relate to that. You know, certainly in my own experience, geometry is probably the the most underserved part of the curriculum, you know, and it's the last one to be exemplified. When we have discussions about mathematics, you know, it, it is much more natural to opt for algebra and for arithmetic and and problems of number. And um, so yes, I, I you know I completely see where you're coming from. And although we aspire to proof in our national curriculum here, and um, you know, I I don't think we get anywhere near close to it. And um, I don't know what do you think, Chris.
0: Certainly not in the primary curriculum beyond the basics of, say, proving that something can't be true using a non example of something that's about as close as we get in uh, before kids are kind of 11, 12, um, and they go off to secondary. Um, so it's fascinating to hear you say that One thing I'd add though, um, I think what you said there about um, writing and generalization is really, really interesting. I think you're really onto something but it's worth noting that I think there are aspects of teaching writing particularly at primary level um, that do lend themselves to some kind of self-explanation precisely because they do have some generalizations so let's say particularly when you're learning about um certain nice clear genres like you want children to learn about what the, you know, the, a fairy tale, and there are certain generalizations that you can make about, you know, the good guy and the bad guy and the happy ending and this sort of thing, whereas you get into other aspects of writing and this attempt to generalize just, just falls apart to some extent because you can't, there isn't something, um, there isn't a nice generalization that you can bring to bear yeah, so I do think there are some aspects of writing, but you're dead right. Um, I just remembered, um, I say remembered, looked down at my notes and saw that there was the Rittle, Rittle Johnson and Ler, almost certainly pronounced that wrong, 2016 paper that was saying that a problem can, with self explanation can be overgeneralization, which makes it particularly useful for areas of learning that have these, that are, potentially have certain rules and heuristics like maths. And science, and less so for these subjects where perhaps there aren't these nice rules and heuristics.
1: So I also think and over I don't know, this is just a random opinion, but overgeneralization is is part of learning. And I feel like even great artists, you know, uh, people sometimes when they're talking about craft, talk about copying or, or finding mentors, and then kind of trying to slavishly imitate them until your own unique uh, style comes through. There, there's a kind of overgeneralization that, that is natural in learning that can sometimes be problematic. And sometimes you can avoid that and making that... Uh, I'm thinking of like things like how students sometimes overgeneralize from simple equations Uh, to the extent that they don't really know how to comprehend more complex equations. They misunderstand the equal sign. But sometimes it's just, I don't know, overgeneralization is part of life. Uh, uh, If you've learned something, the tendency is to try to apply it. So I I agree with everything that you said. I just, I sometimes wonder if, uh, I don't know, math teachers, math educators sometimes Say, oh, you know, the problem with teaching it this way is that kids will, you know, make this mistake in the future. Um, I've seen that. Uh, the thing, the case that comes to mind is, you know, um, some people are opposed to teaching children that uh, if you multiply by 10, it's just adding a zero. You know, multiply by 100 and you just add two zeros. It's the simplest thing in the world, right? But there are some mistakes that kids will make when they, when they know that they'll overgeneralize that to like decimals in wrong ways. Uh, but, you know, that's, I don't know part of life a little bit
0: (laughs) yeah I think however carefully you teach that children are going to make those overgeneralizations. I mean even if you do teach that through a deeper understanding of place value etc kids are still going to go oh yeah I did but I do lots of questions and often I just add a zero so however careful you are they are going to draw these things out so being ready to being ready for that further down the line I think is part of good teaching yeah
2: it's an explicit part of the Singaporean curriculum, if I remember correctly. So, you know, who am I to say that they're wrong when it comes to things, you know, curriculum designs? So,
1: yeah. Um, I mean, they, they, I love Singapore. Don't get me wrong. Okay. If anybody from Singapore is listening, I use your materials all the time. However, Singapore, I'm co- I, I, this is it. I'm, I'm going to do it on your podcast. I'm going to say Singapore has some things they can do better.
0: You can't, you can't just, stop there.
1: Yeah, <laughs> you have to tell us more. Give us
0: some examples.
1: Um uh let's see. Well, okay, I've given students <laughs> No, this'll be this will be silly and petty. Like the the illustrations sometimes in them, uh, where like there's like a fish playing basketball, and just kind of why? Why <laughs> did we need that fish playing basketball? <laughs> no, and, and sometimes it feels like things escalate quite quickly without enough practice. Uh, in their curriculum, uh, you know, five times 10, 50, 57 times 32, it's probably, excuse me, pardon, wait, <laughs> <laughs> wait, how, you, this is best lesson two?
2: <laughs> we we use the Singaporean material as our main textbook, and we have to, during our planning sessions, because everything's mapped out, we will think about where, where the people's going to get stuck, and what questions are structurally similar enough that we can re- give them maybe six or seven more to practice, because they're not going to go from a to F and picking up those then, those connections we need yes we spend a lot of time thinking about the structure of the questions that we know people will fall down on yes I totally get that
1: yeah but I, you know it's good materials and good visuals except some of the the bars are needlessly complex so I'll say that also Singapore <laughs> I'm sure <laughs> if kids get good at it if, I'm sure you can teach kids you know and and some of the some of that complexities what are you going to do but uh, some of it, it's a little bit a little bit too much.
0: From my experience, there are certain, I mean, I love, I love a bar model, big fan of a bar model, but there are certain questions, and um Elliot Morgan will be delighted to hear me say this. There are certain times and certain questions that feel so um unlikely, so fabricated. So it's like you've just created this question so that we can do something with a bar model. Rather than so that we can understand a little bit more about the mathematics, or at least that's my experience of some uh, bits and pieces that I've seen from a particular textbook, different to the one Kieran's talking about, a particular textbook that is based on um, Singapore maths.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, Singapore itself, they've got like a lot of different books in their series. I often find that I can kind of triangulate between them and, and come up with something plausible for my students. When um, you
0: describe what's going on with self-explanation, there's obviously an extent to which there's a gap between um, what you are showing to pupils and what you want them to infer. And there is a sense, particularly thinking about your sequence for worked examples, in which there is uh, this prompted inference that pupils are doing. You are saying like, here it is, Have have a think about this, analyze this yourself, then have the opportunity to talk about that with um, with a partner and then we'll you know discuss it a bit further is there any way in which someone might say well are there elements of discovery learning there is there a sense in which you're missing an opportunity just to say this is how it works I'm just going to explain it to you or is it would that be a particularly unsubtle and unfair way to characterize self-explanation as a sort of discovery learning?
1: It's it's a really interesting question. And I think it cuts to a lot of, of, of the core things that we want to talk about. In my mind, there's two things to talk about it primarily. The first thing is, 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 is you talk about a gap or some inference. you know. But what, what activity <laughs> that students do uh, that a teacher asks a student to do. I think literally all of them. There's always a gap, right? You know, uh, uh, five plus seven equals what? I could just tell you it equals 12. Why don't you figure it out? Is that discovery learning? Analyze this work example and and, and figure out what this is happening here. Is that discovery learning? I haven't told you exactly what it is. And why don't I just tell you? Why don't I just tell you the five plus seven equals 12? So let's take even... A, the, the, the first is I think it's not unusual, not necessarily unusual compared to other things we ask students to do, to ask students to, to provide a self-explanation. But I think that, that's, that's answering the question in a narrow way. The big question, the second thing that we should talk about is like, well, what is discovery learning? And, and how does it relate to all these other things? So, or, or, or to put it a different way, what's wrong with discovery learning? Uh, you know, if we ask students to make inferences all the time, if we ask them to do five plus seven equals 12 all the time, and if problem, uh, uh, what's the difference between that and discovery learning? You might say something I think is not going to work out. You might say, oh, well, I've taught students how to do five plus seven equals 12. And you know what? Maybe you have taught students how to do five plus seven equals 12. Maybe you've written that on the board, but have you written 21 plus 37 equals, you know, have you done that? You haven't done that is the point you've taught, uh, You've given an explanation, maybe a direct explanation, sure, of how to solve this class of problems. Absolutely, but you haven't done that problem. There's a jump, there's always a jump for any real practice. So that can't be, the, the existence of an inference, uh, a leap that students have to make on their own or left to do on their own can't be, can't be what we're talking about here. So I would propose that when we talk about discovery learning and what's wrong with it really, is just what distinguishes it from practice, right? It's not the type of task, it's whether students are prepared to be successful at it or whether they're prepared to be unprepared for that and they're likely to be unsuccessful at it, right? I mean, uh, the same task, the same discovery activity is often indistinguishable from an application problem later on. So let's clear up the landscape a little bit and let's forget discovery, I think. And just talk about what, let's look at some basic, I don't know. I would, I would posit the following things. I'd say, what's good and what's bad? What's bad are kids not being able to do things? Being given a task that they don't know how to do, and they approach it in a way that isn't fun, isn't interesting, uh, isn't important, and uh, is often frustrating, and they can't learn from it. And uh, what's good is tasks that get kids thinking, get kids thinking about cognitively appropriate things, things that are important for the discipline, things that'll help them later on, and that they're ready to to do it. And, and we also want to trend towards more independence. You know, I think those are those are relatively uncontroversial, um, relatively uncontroversial things you know, you can always find a controversy in teaching, you know, but I think that in the scheme of things, that's relatively uncontroversial. Kids shouldn't be like flailing around purposely. (laughs) They should be relatively successful in the things that they try to do. Uh, It should be appropriate and important stuff for them to learn. Look, that's, and we're trending towards independence. So let's talk about, uh, uh, I think with, with, with things like explanation, that can be anywhere on that same continuum. We can ask kids to explain and they can not be prepared for that, and they will fail, and it wouldn't be interesting, and it wouldn't be something they're successful at, and it wouldn't be important for the discipline and the learning. It's just kind of a waste of everybody's time. That would be, I guess, you want to call that discovery learning and say that that's 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 you know ineffective. I'm okay with that. If you want to call that just bad planning, I'm okay with that also. Um, and then you know, there's self explanation can be further down that line. Uh, it can be things that they're prepared to do. You can you can directly instruct students in, in effective self-explanation for a lot of types of problems. Um, as a matter of fact, I think in, in I don't remember which riddle. I don't know if it's the Riddle Johnson review from 2016 that you were talking about earlier, the one with Lair or Laura. Um, but it's another it's the one that one I was referring to earlier. Um, part of that review, I, and I think this is so nice, is is, you know, I think the axiom is what matters is not what matters is what kids are thinking not who prompts the thinking, not who came up with the idea primarily. Um, the thing that leads to learning is thinking hard about it. If you share an idea with me and I think a lot about it and I think about it hard uh, and deeply and I flexibly and I kind of mull it over and I think about how to apply it, I, I'm learning, even if you come up with the idea. So, so that's, that, that's the kind of insight that leads people to say, oh, discovery learning versus direct instruction. There's no real advantage for discovery learning, at least not a cognitive one on the narrowly defined question of 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 efficacy learning in the session or whatever. Um, I'm trying to like ignore motivation stuff, but but you know the same thing can be said with self-explanation. It doesn't really matter who come generates the self-explanation as long as people are thinking carefully about it. Now, how do you make people think carefully about something? So so there's interesting scaffolds that Riddle Johnson. Um, collects in that little paper, and Rankle has some of these also. Some of it's from Rankle's research, too. Things like um, multiple choice self explanation prompts. Like, what, what best explains? Um, and I've tried this about a bit in my classroom, I like it. Like, what best explains why Karen's uh, explanation of uh, uh, solution worked? Option A, you know, he made it up on the spot and nobody cares. And option B, something smart. <laughs> uh, 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 triangles, uh, uh, side angles always add up to 180 degrees. Uh, that, that's kind of a generalization. That, uh, that if you give students multiple choice, they can still kind of think carefully about the meaning of it uh, and benefit from self-explanation prompts in some of these studies, even though they didn't, you know, generate it. And what I'm trying to describe is that that's a scaffold, the same way you'd scaffold problem solving. So I think it's it that I. The way I think about this stuff, and I think it's useful to think about it, is let's just think of explanation. And self-explanation is just another thing we're teaching, another kind of task that we want students to be able to do. Um, and we can scaffold them, uh, we can support them you know, with it if, if they're not ready to generate it on their own. And if they are able to generate it on their own, they can and that that's great that's that's it's it's like problem solving right when you're ready for independence you should do it independently when you're only able to do it with support you should do it with support if you need direct instruction let's give you just some direct instruction um, it's just like another thing in the universe not some other thing apart from regular teaching
0: yeah love that great great answer just as a defense because i recognize that was a slightly provocative question that maybe doesn't reflect my thinking there's, I've got like written down in notes here, like there's always a leap. I mean, even with a clear explanation, <laughs> even with seven plus five equals 12, there's still a leap because you'll be using words. You know, you'll be, like in pretty much all cases, kids are still having to make some kind of cognitive leap. And the question isn't like, is there a gap or isn't there a gap? Arguably, as you say, with your idea of a continuum, it's often, well, what's the size of that gap? Is it, are we asking pupil to, pupils to make a leap? that is just about within their grasp, that is cognitively demanding, but not so impossible that they've got no chance of success. Um, So yeah, absolutely, yeah, love that answer, thank you.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I didn't mean to come down too hard on the idea, I I just think that a lot of discussions about discovery suffer from, I don't know, like general lack of clarity about what we're talking about. (laughs) <laughs> you know uh general lack of clarity about about like realistically right i mean there's ob- obviously you can't teach like you can't i'm gonna say a ridiculous thing you can't teach you can't teach kids everything that they you 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 can't cover you can't every <laughs> we are in the business of helping kids do things on their own it's it's important not to kind of express absurdities in the context of talking about discovery learning that like this, I don't know, sometimes people say silly things. And, and one of the silly things that people sometimes say is that kids learn everything better when they discover it on their own. And that's obviously absurd. And, uh, you know, it's also absurd to say that you could uh, cover explicitly everything that a student is ever going to come across, you know, <laughs> you, you just can't.
0: I'm on this point you were making about before about this like continuum as well and the idea of that it not being as simple as all that the um Bizra, i think et al paper from 2018 inducing self explanation and meta-analysis talks about potentially there being a value to matching the prompt that you give as part of self-explanation to the level of expertise of the student which i just thought i saw that in my notes and thought that just tied in beautifully with what you're saying and suddenly kind of made sense in my head because of what you had said so i thought i would bang on about it
1: <laughs> i tell you said
0: idol oh sorry no Bizra et al so Bizra oh. and sorry yeah oh, and, the uh, other... uh, tw- yeah uh, Sorry, it's called inducing self-explanation and meta-analysis. I don't know if it's particularly yeah. great. It just seemed like quite an interesting paper on on the subject. It was the one that kind of I went to because it seemed to summarize bits and pieces for a novice like me.
1: Yeah, the other, the other, I wasn't sure because the other, I thought you were talking about uh, Rankel and ITEL again because I think I I think that they're responsible for the other technique I've seen for scaffolding, which is um, deleting by making it a fill-in-the-blank exercise, but the words you delete are inessential. <laughs> uh, so you, can kind of, you get both a model of, a lot of the explanation is modeled for you right there. Uh, something like, uh, what's the one I said a second ago? The, the, the three angles of a triangle always add up to 180 degrees. So you might say like the blank angles of a triangle always add up to 180 degrees. If that's all that students are ready to complete on their own uh, hopefully, they know how many angles a triangle has. But then they're they're, they're engaged in the sense that they're doing because problem solving is engaging, right? That's what that is. It's it's kids like people like answering questions. So you're you're engaged in 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 trying to answer a question, but you also have the explanation kind of directly presented for you for your for your cognition for your ability to take it in and say, oh, okay, this is. So that that that's another example of the scaffold. That you might use for students who aren't ready to give self ex- generate self-explanations on their own yet.
2: Yeah, I mean, it, quite often we'll find that there's a, there's a gap between our pupils ability to articulate what they've experienced. You know, so they might have a reasonable understanding of the mathematics, but when it comes to explaining in words, there's, there's quite a gap because they're, they're coming in, you know, it takes a long time for them to learn to read fully um, and to, you know, develop their sort of social skills. And it sounds like that kind of exercise. Will be quite beneficial in terms of giving people the confidence. They oh yeah, I do know that. I, I know, I understand triangles in this way, but I couldn't compose that sentence based, you know, about the the triangles.
1: I mean, I don't know if you ever find yourself, especially with younger students uh, doing this, but um, you know, there's, a, there's some kind of whole class discussion and the student says something and then you say, can you try that again with the word, whatever the word happens to be, try that again with the word, Inequality behavior uh, equation. Try restating that, or writing on you know a word bank on on, on the on for display during some kind of discussion. You know, here's the five words that we're going to pra- try to use as part of this discussion. I, I I think that this is going a little bit beyond the evidence, um, in my opinion. But I think that one thing that hasn't happened yet that maybe could happen in in research and teaching and education stuff is to realize that, that the really explanation in a group setting, in a social setting and self-explanation in a kind of more private individual setting are intimately connected. And I think it just makes sense to me uh, based on my understanding of how just like learning works that uh, students get a, an understanding that, that both, both self-explanation and communal social explanation are two sides of the same coin. And a classroom where we're always encouraging students to articulate themselves with sophisticated language and new concepts is going to enrich their self-explanation also. So I kind of suspect that that what this is all pointing to is I think what we know, which is that we want our classrooms to be places where kids are talking in new and sophisticated ways. And we're always pushing their ability to articulate things further. And it's interesting because it does feel right it 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 feels like we're going beyond a narrower picture of what classroom life is like. I think that's the connection to discovery, right? Not so much like we're using the same process, more like we're expanding our sense of of what has to happen in school. It's not just you know solving a problem you you couldn't learn to do this just by yourself at a computer. There's something social about explanation and I think when we talk in this way, we're sort of saying, well, yeah, we need to have a full classroom where we're talking about why, and we should teach it the same way we teach other things. We should teach, uh, we should consider explanation, kind of a a curriculum goal and take it as seriously as, 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 as the problem solving because they're connected. And I guess, you know, if, if that does feel a little bit like, uh, you know the progressives won. <laughs> they were right. <laughs> uh, they were saying they were focusing too narrowly on problem solving, and and uh, uh, we can't let them win. No, but 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 uh, what well, we can take away, you know, the balancing thing that I think traditionalists have to offer there is well, you should teach it so that they can do it. You should teach them well. <laughs> you should teach them to actually explain in a way that's scaffolded, supported, direct, explicit, uh, enables people to succeed. That that's kind of how I'd see the balance that I, I sometimes think of myself as a traditionalist with an expansive notion of what mathematics is and should should be taught so that's kind of I'm 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 attracted to that position
0: that sounds like my perfect explanation for Kieran as well <laughs> a traditionalist with a a bold expansive view of what mathematics is and should be would probably be I mean, I was about to say epitaph. You're a bit young for that. <laughs> Jeez,
1: Ew, on, on your grave, this is getting dark. <laughs> yeah, what's going to happen in season like... five? <laughs> oh my uh, god, season five of what show? One of your 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 I don't know English sad David Tennant murder <laughs> mysteries on a deserted vacation spot. Yeah,
2: I I know the ones you're talking about.
1: (laughs) It's just Broadchurch. Broadchurch. (laughs) The only one I've seen.
2: We're moving slightly closer to the classroom. And I sort of, you know, mentioned earlier on that you've sort of almost got this model that you employ when exploring worked examples in general. But you've already sort of clarified that, you know, it's a bit more than that. And it's not just behaviors. But is there do you have something similar? Um, or do you have an approach, you know, taking what you've learned from the research in terms of your preference for behaving in the classroom when it comes to self-explanation? Like, how would you encourage your pupils to explain? It?
1: So are, you're saying, you're saying, uh, how would I encourage pupils or how would I encourage other teachers to?
2: Um, I think probably, you know, in, in your own classrooms, what, what's, your, what's your go-to at the moment? You know, because obviously it, it changes term to term and things, yeah.
1: doesn't it? Um, well, I, I think that one thing I've I have i have discovered in my own teaching in the last year and a half or so is that what if questions small what if questions are really an easy way to generate self explanations um, and to make generalizations so if you solve a problem i've sometimes told my students or if a student raises their hand and uh, starts saying, uh, like I say, okay, can anyone explain why, you know, uh, we're allowed to subtract whatever two from each side or whatever in this case, or, or why this is the best, whatever the question happens to be. Uh, and if a student raises their hand, this sometimes happens and they're like, oh, I, I, they start saying things. They're like, actually, it's hard to explain. I don't know how to do this. I'm gonna put my hand down to call somebody else. I'll stick with them and I'll say, okay, okay. ask yourself, a what if question, what if instead of x squared equals 5x plus 12 equals zero, it was x squared plus 5x plus 13? How would that change the solution? I think that asking those kinds of what if questions is, at least in mathematics, a very quick way to get at a generalization in algebra or arithmetic. Change one little thing. What if this were slightly different? You probably won't be changing the problem. In a major way if it's a number or an operation if you change plus to minus you're probably not uh moving changing the subject uh and that's an easy way so i i do encourage students to do that and um but but i'm not i'm not that's kind of on the side i suppose since my self-explanation prompts are really prompted i'm writing those prompts you know what i mean um i'm not asking students to be independent very often in self-explanation um so for, you know, that when I say that I'm encouraging students to say, what if, I, I brought that up in the context of a whole group discussion, but frequently that's just a, a bullet point. Hey everybody, <laughs> let's talk about this. Uh, you should talk to your partners right now and say, what if we change 12 to plus 13? What would that do? How would you solve, how would that change the solution? Does that answer the question? Uh, I, I don't know, I can't tell if there's a mismatch between what I imagine my classroom like and 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 the kind of like encouraging students direction that that, that I saw in your question.
2: Yeah, no, I think it, it does make sense because what I'm taking from it is that it's almost impossible to look at self-explanation in isolation from the rest of what you do in the classroom because, you know, the prompts that, you know, they obviously feature in teaching math with examples um, quite prominently. And so for me to say, well, what do you do with self-explanation? Well, actually, it's part of your your pedagogy in a a broader sense, rather than being able to pinpoint, well, on you know, just like the answer to the first question on day one, I I do this and I do that, you know? Yeah, so I I, I think it makes sense to me.
1: I mean, the other thing is that I'm really, in most cases, students need scaffold. I I can't just say, go ahead and explain this. When there's an example on the board and I'm saying students, you know, go through each line, I am encouraging them to be specific is I guess another thing. Uh, I encourage them to like not ignore any symbols uh, I feel like that's an important mathematical reading habit, to to really be detail oriented, to really not allow yourself to just kind of skim over and say, oh yeah, sure, I understand the gist of this. I kind of understand it, kind of. Yeah, sure, I understand it. But you're right, it's integrated into everything. But it's also very. I think you can isolate the self-explanation prompts, but they they are prompted. I'm not. It's it's like we were talking about in the very beginning, where where do I have hopes that students would. Indep- Independently, be able to kind of carry off certain self-explanation habits? I Maybe, I, I would love that actually. But uh, right now I'm scaffolding them into, and, and providing them with really specific ones. Sometimes in, in doing more than just giving prompts, but, but really like I was saying before, either the multiple choice thing or the fill in the blank stuff to just try to get articulations of general principles out there.
0: There's a really nice um, example of that in in your book where you're looking funnily enough given what we talked about earlier i think it's uh, geometry not proof but um looking at you know certain uh principles so you're looking at um the angles inside um different polygons through by by referencing how many triangles you can draw within them and there's some nice prompts in there where you've got i think like a hexagon and an octagon and you're saying and you say okay so why are there one of the prompts is something like well why are there uh, what happens if there are two more angles uh, sorry if there are two more sides here or why is it the case that there are two more sorry two fewer triangles than there are sides and you're kind of prompting them to start almost pushing that down to kate to say okay so what if this was five sides what if this was four what if this was three um so there's subtle prompts there but enough to get them thinking I mean this is just a chance for me to say people really should buy that book <laughs> they will people will have noticed if they've been following me that I have plugged it repeatedly over the past year because my uh, my partner is a secondary maths teacher um, adores it absolutely adores the book and it's been something that how she says has really advanced her practice and she's someone who's been teaching maths for about a decade and a bit now so um if she, if she and is very good at it from why here so if it advances her practice then i think it can support anyone
1: i i it's very generous of you to say that i'll go even further you should consider buying if you don't have hundreds of copies of this book uh it's very thin so if your hope is to kind of like stack them or anything <laughs> you'll, you'll need a lot of them uh so you really want to go for volume <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: Oh. See, and I never thought of that. I've always been telling people to buy a copy. I feel like I've no, missed a trip. No, <laughs>
1: you're just going to be disappointed because it's so thin, because it's so short. <laughs> Look, uh, you're going to need a lot.
2: <laughs> yeah, you've been underplugging if anything, Chris. I mean, right. there, there are many, many edgy books, but yours falls into the category of the extremely well-written and extremely useful, I think. You know, so the fact that it gets mentioned quite a lot on this podcast, and you know, I think it's testament to the the hard work. You know, you're talking about your process earlier on. You know, I think there's a lot of math teachers who are really, really grateful, you know, for that work.
1: Well, I really appreciate it. I I work really hard on the writing. Um, I, I threw out a lot. My process involved just throwing out many chapters that that, that didn't feel like they were working. I also really struggled. For a long time in the writing process, to try to nail the tone, uh, or, or the tone's the wrong word, to try to um, get the right vantage point, because uh, I I find it so hard to write about teaching as a teacher. Uh, it, it's so easy to drift into the kind of patterns of authoritative researcher talk that I think a lot of edu writing falls into. Uh, the kind of thing that starts citing stuff and says therefore this is what everybody should do but i i i i feel like we're teachers right so we should try to to sound like teachers uh but that turns out that's kind of hard without sounding flimsy so I, I i definitely it's a short book but I, I i worked really hard on it so i'm glad that it, that, that it, uh I'm, you know and also i'll just say this it's been very nice to have written a book people people sometimes uh i don't know Why bother writing a book? Um, There's so many books out there. The internet is free. You don't make a lot of money off of writing books. That's certainly true in my case. (laughs) I'm not. uh, I'm not living it up. You know. Do you know about Scrooge McDuck uh, with his like uh, swimming pool full of money? (laughs) Not my life. But it's it's it's. People should write. Teachers should write. Teachers should write and try to sound like teachers. Um, They should work hard on it. And and uh, but it's more people should do it. It's good. You're both excellent authors also, practitioner writers. We need more of that.
2: And yeah, that, that's also very kind of you to say, um, but I, to- I totally agree. You know, The more teachers writing you know, and then also thinking carefully about the writing process, the, the better off we'll be, you know? not least because they'll have spent time thinking about the particular focus of the book and then we'll have a message to share because you know, you're absolutely right. No one gets into education books for the for the money but the, the experience alone itself is is definitely worth it
1: absolutely i'm on the record now having said that but i that I don't i don't regret having written a book or, spending <laughs> time or trying to write more however unsuccessfully so far
2: <laughs> i mean uh, yeah that, that's generally how it starts and then it's only yeah. at the very end do you start to feel um, like you're getting somewhere I've, I've been banned from writing anything more until the kids have gone to secondary school so
1: how many kids are are there
2: uh, two they're five and seven so they're oh my god one's almost in kindergarten but it's it's reception in in england and the other one's going into key stage two which is sort of junior school.
1: our kids are i, I have a, i have a third who's who's gonna turn two in a month but otherwise our older two are we should have a play date uh, <laughs> yeah same ages pretty much <laughs>
2: Yeah, definitely. I mean, we'll have to go over to the East Coast. because Or uh,
1: just meet halfway in some <laughs> island in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. <laughs>
2: um, are, do you have any words of warning for anyone keen to get started? You know, they might listen to this and think about Monday morning, I'm going to get started with uh, self-explanation. What sort of guides would you give them to sort of temper their enthusiasm? Um,
1: to temper their enthusiasm... I would, well, I, I don't The words of warning, I mean, what's the worst that could happen, right? <laughs> um, I, well, the worst that could happen, I think, is, is that, a, that a teacher would say to students, OK, I, I've heard that self-explanation is great. Go ahead, explain why. Why does this work? And as we were saying before, students can't do that easily. They, often, they lack the vocabulary. They lack uh, the conceptual knowledge. They lack, uh, uh, they lack, they lack, they lack, they lack, they lack. So we support them. So, so I, you know, um, I think an easy way to get started is to, you've given your explanation. Maybe it's not a worked example. Maybe it's your, maybe you're a chalk and talk kind of person. Maybe you're, you know, five plus nine. And uh, and so we can do that for, you know, seven plus whatever. And, uh, and but then after your explanation, it's, it's, I find it easy to, to add on a, Pause. What if we did? What if instead of five plus seven was five plus eight? And I think that's a very easy way to get started. And it's it's uh, it's prompting students to explain uh, in a concrete way. Uh, they'll say, "What do you mean five plus eight instead of?" five? I said, "Well, well, what if it was five plus eight? How would that change the solution? What would we have to do differently? Uh, would could we do the same thing? Uh, would we have to do anything differently?" I think that's the easiest path for myself. Well, the easiest path into self-explanation uh, because it costs nothing. It doesn't need to be written on paper. It doesn't matter how you're instructing students. Uh, it's a two-word question, what if, and uh, I think it sets us off in the, in the right direction. What if? No, there, there's a lot of books called what if. There's a, the XKCD guy's got a book called what if, you can't do that. <laughs>
2: Oh, know, okay. I, I think that that's a really healthy and and positive way to look at the response to that question, you know, because then, yeah, because people will, I think, rightly be enthusiastic to get cracking, and so you, you're saying this is how this is the best way to start. That, that, make, that makes a whole lot of sense, you know. Um, I mean, I could spend hours talking maths with you, Michael, and um, and you know, hopefully this won't be the last time that you join me and Chris and sort of some of the regulars on thinking a about primary education. And um, you know, and maybe next time we'll choose an area where you're less of the expert in the in the room. So we and we can all sort of you know push some ideas around. I don't know. And um, yeah, but all said to do is say thank you very much, Chris, for joining me. Thanks for having me, Karen. Thank you, Michael.
1: Yes, and you know what, even if I'm not the expert, I I'll talk like this. So <laughs> <laughs> on anything. Uh, <laughs> Anyway, but no, thank you very much for having me. This was a pleasure. I do hope that we get a chance to chat again.
2: And to everyone at home, until next time, thanks for listening.
1: Don't you dare say that you're ahead of the United States of America in anything. That is the one thing that will offend an American. (laughs) USA, USA.